listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Christofaro, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. While we didn't plan on creating a series of episodes on the death of a partner or a spouse, that's how things are shaking out this month. In the last episode, I talked with Emily about the death of her partner, Chantel. In this one, I talk with Alexandra about how she rebuilt her life after her husband, Sean, died of suicide in 2020. Sean's death was a complete shock, and it upended everything in Alexandra's world. Faced with becoming a solo parent to their very young son, she was also dealing with intense guilt and sadness and anger and all the rest of the emotions. In the midst of that, Alexandra was also the recipient of blame and recrimination from Sean's family and friends. In the last three years, she's called into question pretty much every aspect of everything, including her own thoughts and beliefs about grief. She is now an advocate and public speaker for resources in the aftermath of a suicide. She's also the host of a podcast called The Widow's Club and the author of a new book, the book she wished she had when Sean died, called The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. Alexandra, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, when someone dies, it can be really easy for people to see that death as our whole story, as the person who's left behind and who's grieving. Um, But it's really just part of our story. And I'm wondering, what do you want listeners to know about who you are? Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. I appreciate that you um, talk about that because it is something that can be at the forefront for people's mind. Oh, there's that widow or how is she doing? She's a single mom. Um, Yeah, so I right now after having such a loss of my husband passing away, um, I, I, I joke around, I'm a toy fixer. I'm also someone who has had to learn to YouTube simple things to fix around my house. Um, but then I also am a pediatric occupational therapist. So I work with kids. I'm very much into child development, um, neuroscience based research. So I have that nerdy side. Yeah, I live in Colorado. So I really enjoy being able to partake in the summer and winter sports of Colorado. And uh, yeah, there it does get complex. I'll say my sense of humor is something that I think I lost for a bit, but I'm slowly starting to get back. And just being able to find ways to still embrace those moments of joy that we still have in this, this life today. You know, in one of my groups last night, we were talking about uh, the metaphor for grief that's floating around a lot. I can't remember who, like where it originated, but it's like this idea that like when someone dies, our grief arrives and it's a certain size. And we think over time that that grief is going to get smaller, but in but in reality, it's that we grow our lives around that grief. So our life feels bigger. And as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, sometimes growing your life includes YouTubing how to like clean out the kitchen sink drain. <laughs> and, yeah. 
how to fix the Lego ship that just busted apart. Yes, exactly. I, a couple of Christmases ago, was up till midnight. It was like Christmas Eve up till midnight trying to put together the table for my son. And I was like, you know, I've done the Ikea furniture before, but this is a new one where I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Whereas just, you know, Sean was very mechanically minded. So that stuff, I mean, he could do it in five minutes or it would take me an hour and a half. So it's just, you know, being more open to that. Um, And you're right. It's so interesting that you use that metaphor, too, because I was talking to someone recently who was saying, because I've heard before, you know, that grief is just with you. And that's something I really struggle with is I just have this thing and I envision it's in this backpack that I carry around and it's just always going to be there and it's going to morph and change. And I've always attributed that to time going by versus it being more that, no, I'm changing and growing and while it, the grief itself may change, I think how I approach that grief, how I cope and heal and learn things about myself in this different life and new life that I have, that in and of itself changes my response to the grief. And I, that was a really nice light bulb <laughs> to have go off. Oh, okay. I like, I liked that idea as well. You know, in that, Alexandra, then I'm wondering when you look back at all of the things that you've had to like do or take on without Sean or things you've had to figure out how to do in grief. Cause grief brings its own like long list of weird tasks that you have to figure out. What's something you feel particularly proud of yourself for? Oh, you know, I'll say figuring out how to help my son with milestones. Um, he was just over one when Sean died and I just was someone I was very reliant in a way, I think I was codependent on people around me. I'm the youngest in my family, so I'm used to people just doing things and being like, I got this. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and not in in a sense of I'm incapable, but there was just always other people to do things. So I think learning to trust myself that I can figure out how to do things, especially in relation to trying to coach and guide my son when he's in milestones. I remember um, potty training was one of the worst and I know that parents will say, oh, you know, I don't even remember that time. And I'm like, for whatever reason, it stuck with me. <laughs> Other milestones that might, might not really remember, but potty training was really hard. But getting to the other side and going, oh, I did that. I did that. I was able to do that. So I think that's something that sticks out for me because that wasn't part of our plan. It wasn't a plan for, for me to have to figure this stuff out on my own. I imagine it's probably not really anyone's plan that the thing they feel most proud of is like helping their kid get through potty training. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And, and to see that kind of growth, I mean, I use my son kind of as my barometer for how I'm doing. So if, if um, other people, a lot of times people don't know about our situation and I can appreciate that a little bit because I've known of other families where a traumatic death, really starts to dictate their lives and it's there and it's everywhere. And not that I'm hiding it because I certainly am not, but I'm trying to really approach it from a healthy perspective of we can feel these things. We can um, embrace these really hard feelings we have. We can get through them and then we can keep moving forward. You know, going back to that original question of when someone in our life dies, we can get single storied, right? That that's the only thing people know about us or that we know about ourselves. The same happens for the person who dies, especially when someone dies of a cause that's more stigmatized 
and, you know, thinking about Sean and dying of suicide in an effort to not have his life be reduced down to just how he died. What, what do you want the world to know about how he lived? Yeah. And thank you for doing that. I think it's becoming more common that people can recognize that when our loved ones die this way, they're more than that. Like it was a huge shock and that's what seems to be at the forefront. Um, Sean was just a very charismatic, very handy person. So when I say I'm having to learn all these things, he would, um, we built a wine rack together. He built the barn door for our master bathroom. Um, he would say, oh, I just got this idea for a painting and go into our basement and come back two hours later with a fully done painting. Um, he was just very creative in that way. A musician, he played drums professionally, knew how to play the guitar, would make up songs all the time. That was something I'd say initially it was really hard for me because he would make up the most ridiculous and hilarious songs for our son during bath and bedtime. And after he died, I'd be like, I don't, I don't even know the first thing to do. And I would try my best. And <laughs> you could see my son was like, just stop. Stop. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, he was just, he had a really great sense of humor. He was such a good storyteller. He really just wanted, you know, to have this really cohesive family feeling. He moved back to Colorado um, right before he and I met in 2017. And he had been living in Washington State. He came back to be closer to family and really wanted to be able to do family holidays and really celebrate. And so that was, it was so great. Um, his stories, I, I joke, he was a mechanic, so very mechanically minded, which is our son. So I'm in trouble um, as he starts school of how am I going to do this? Because that's not my brain. But Sean would like get really involved in these stories about work. And I would have no idea what he was talking about, but just couldn't stop listening because he was just such a charismatic storyteller. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, the flip side of that is he just also, I think, couldn't, the way I describe it is he couldn't really outrun his childhood trauma. That's where we ended up where we are today. And of course, I want to make sure it's clear. No one can really know the intention or reasons behind someone dying by suicide. That's just my speculation. Yeah, we're left with just trying to put the puzzle pieces together, even if we know it's impossible to put the puzzle fully together. I I did this. It was a Volkswagen. Like Sean really liked German cars. And it was this Volkswagen puzzle, 3,000 pieces. And he and I had, had started it before he died. And I finished it after... And there were 2,998 pieces, two pieces missing. I was like, did the dog eat them? Did I miss them? And they couldn't just send me the pieces because puzzles are, are cut differently. Sorry for the tangent. Anyway, so I ended up having, I reordered the puzzle and actually did it. Cause I was like, I need the 3,000 pieces. And I'm going to make it into something one day. Yeah, it is hard with, with this type of death. Cause you don't get those answers. You don't get to know the why. And honestly, by the time I, you know, see Sean again and, and have an opportunity to ask those questions. Um, my sister brilliantly one time said, well, by the time you get to see him again, you may not even care anymore to know why. Oh, the hair on the back of my neck went up a little bit when you talked about the puzzle, because I was like, what an apt metaphor to get to the end of this puzzle. And the, those two pieces are missing. I know. And, and some people said, you know, why didn't you just keep it? You know, it make, gives it some personality. Oh, no, the puzzler in me. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> Yeah. And I think about like, when something so big and unmanageable and out of our control happens in our life, right? Some certain ones of us are going to go towards things that we absolutely can control. And you were going to finish that 3000 piece puzzle. That is right. <laughs> and it, that speaks to how other there are other ways that we externally look for those ways to feel that sense of control to feel 
that sense of peace or even your footing, I'd say, you know, right after Sean died, I was, I was just trying to find some way to feel like my feet were flat on the ground. And it was really hard. And the majority of the time it wasn't because that just made me feel very unstable. And that, that creates a sense of not feeling safe or secure. And just, you know, starting to work through the grief got me there. But you're right. It's just a very, very unstable time. We talk so much about how grief is different for everyone for a variety of reasons. And and one of those reasons, I think, is the unique way that we heard about the death. And I'm wondering, how how did you find out that Sean had died? Yeah, so I kind of was in a unique situation. Um, technically, it was confirmed for me at 6.30 the night that he died. Uh, and I, at the time, had left my house and was at my parents' house. And so the sheriff's officers had to find me at my parents' house to, to disclose. But that was 6.30 on a Saturday. 8.30 in the morning, I had an inkling of what was happening. I got a text from Sean and knew that something was going to happen and that this may have been the outcome of that. So I spent the next six hours at least trying to get in touch with him. At 2.15 p.m. that day, I had some sort of response where I collapsed on my kitchen floor. I had not heard from Sean and I collapsed on my kitchen floor and I screamed and yelled. And when I was informed at 6.30 that Sean had died, it turned out that his time of death was at 2.14 p.m. What did that mean to you kind of in that moment to have had that physical connection with something that you hadn't actually heard about yet? I think it could just attest to the connection that Sean and I had and being in each other's world and knowing each other as well as we did uh, a lot after he died. It, um, often what was brought to my attention was just how little of time that he and I knew each other. We knew each other for just under three years and that that was used as a comparison in, in grief. I'm sure you've talked about how people come up and start comparison, comparing their grief So it was often brought to my attention. Well, you didn't know him for very long, so you couldn't have known him as well. I disagree with that because I I feel that he and I just really had a very deep soul connection. You know, I've heard in other stories of things like this happening. I don't know if I ever thought it would happen to me. But I remember after collapsing on my floor saying, he's gone. I know he's gone. And then we just had to wait for another four hours for them to, and we were still trying to get confirmation and, and try, like calling the sheriff's officers and trying to get confirmation because he was not at home and he died and trying to, to, and they, they were very sweet. They just kept saying, when we have information, we'll get it to you. And, and once I figured out what had happened, they had already found him. They just couldn't disclose to me that they had found him. And you knew on a body soul level before that. Yes. Anyways. What do you remember about those first few hours and days and weeks after Sean died? I'll be honest, not much. Um, I was in quite quite a daze and my shock was about four months. And it doesn't that doesn't mean my memory was poor for that time, but it kind of comes in and out. Separation anxiety was a big one. I had to be close to my son and yet I didn't have the capacity to be a very good mom. So I, I still deal with that guilt and shame around that. And that was for about two to two and a half weeks where I just... He couldn't be far from me, but I, I really struggled with just routine. So I had family members who'd fill in that routine, like doing bed and bath for him and um, 
being able to help with meals and I was able to get him to his daycare, but it was still a, quite a struggle. I had nightmares. I um, just had lots of anxiety around his death. Um, there's a lot of, again, in that shock, is, is this really happening to me? This wasn't part of the deal. Mentioned briefly that my situation was a little complicated by some additional trauma and drama from friends and family who were uh, looking to take some, um, potentially take some legal action against me as though I had something directly to do with his death. And so it was just very complicated. I just remember feeling very disorganized and chaotic and not really understanding what was happening. I didn't know the first thing about working on an estate, being able to figure out what the steps were, what to do. And so just a lot of absolute chaos <laughs> without being able to sleep or eat, which as we know, are very important parts to keeping our body healthy and our mind healthy during grief. But I, I couldn't access any of those uh, initially. For everyone, there seems to be, well, I can't say anything's for everyone. So let me retract that because everything's different for everybody. But for a lot of people, they will say there's kind of a moment or a series of moments when they sort of come to after that, like initial just haze and chaos of like, okay, I have a little bit more consciousness now. And this is really happening. Do you remember having a moment or moments like that? Mm -hmm. And mine was a little later. So again, my shock, and it was when my shock lifted, I would say, and that was about four months. And I do remember when that lifted, because it was almost like all the feelings that were hanging out still in my body, where it's like a gate opened, and they were all released. And I went, Oh, my gosh, you're not he's not coming through the door. He's not coming home. He's not just on this trip. I have to figure out how to be an adult, be a mom. And also, I have all these feelings that are horrible <laughs> uh, that I have to sit with and figure out what to do. I will say I didn't handle it very well initially. And it took me a little bit to kind of, again, get my bearings enough to say, get your stuff together. You have a kid you have to raise and you like in order to raise him, you need to get yourself healthier, which I'm still a little bit on that journey of, you know, trying to figure that out. Uh, but for the most part, I was like, okay, get your, you know, eat healthier what can you do, like when and, and what can you do for exercise and what what did I need to do for my emotional state so that I could start to show my son how to, in a healthy manner, work through his emotions. And yeah, so it was about four months, but oh, that was a hard day. And it would seem like it was a catalyst to like kind of go back to the basics of like food, water, rest, movement. How can I kind of start from scratch there? Exactly. And so I started actually working backwards, uh, where I started, I really struggled in the morning. I still, not so much I struggle in the mornings, I still struggle in the evenings, uh, depending on the kind of day I've had. But I started with something as basic as my son's bed and bath routine. I was like, okay, can we do like our night routine? Awesome. I know that every day I can commit to doing this. And that's where I started. And then after I got a little bit more comfortable, I'd move backwards and say, okay, what can I do? All right. I'm not really good. I can't really cook a meal, but maybe I can ask for help for meals for a little bit. And that will make sure that I know that we have consistency for meals. And then I just continually worked backwards through my day. Um, it took a very long time before I could wake up to an alarm. <laughs> I just couldn't um, for a very long time. 
And then, you know, now I'm to a point where I can wake up to an alarm and I can get myself going in the morning. But I had to start with those really small routines and say, okay, I can, I know I can do this. You mentioned that when Sean died, well, let me back up for a moment. I think we have the stereotype that when someone dies, particularly a partner or a spouse, and if there's a kid involved, like the family and the friends wrap around and provide all this support and like all the attentions going in that way. And like, obviously, with most stereotypes, it doesn't always play out that way. And, and you sort of mentioned that, that there was a lot of, um, I think you used the word drama and conflict. Um, and it sounds like quite a bit of blame happening. How, how did you work around through navigate that element of it? I had to learn how to set boundaries. And that took me quite a bit. And part of figuring out how to set boundaries and feeling confident to do so meant that I had to look at characteristics or attributes of myself that were almost impeding my ability to do that. And so when people were saying these things about me that I must have partied, like I must have had something to do with his death or they knew all about my marriage. So it's just not true. <laughs> Uh, but that somehow my marriage was the culprit of this, you know, and again, no one wants to ba- blame the deceased. So we start looking for other ways to point fingers. And so I bought in for a long time. I bought into what everyone was saying. I must have done this. I must have, it must have been me. I must have done something to him that caused him to do this. And it took a lot of intervention for, through therapy and really trying to heal that people pleaser in myself to say no. And I had a great therapist who said, when you can quiet all the voices, what do you know to be true about your relationship with Sean? And that's just starting there is what helped me to start to say, okay, I, I'm hurt by the fact that people are saying these things, uh, but I need to set boundaries. And so I had to, as much as I had hoped for what you described as this family coming and being around and being supportive. I mean, very early on, I think day two, I had someone uh, that was in Sean's family say to me, if you want anything from us, you're going to have to make the effort because we're not going to be there for you. And I was like, okay, okay. Like that's so not a response that I thought that would happen. And so uh, just figuring out that I needed to, like I said, set some boundaries and say, you know, if I, what do I want to teach my son? That's usually kind of my filter is what am I teaching my son by allowing people to treat me this way? In all of that, Alexandra, like having to navigate those dynamics, were there things that you learned from Sean of how he navigated his family and friends that helped you through that? That's a great question. I think Sean internalized a lot. So anytime there was any sort of discord or conflict or, you know, if someone was guilting him or anything like that, he just took it on. He didn't really have very good outlets or healthy ways to work through that. What I will say though, is even after he died and still to this day, I don't have a lot of anger towards Sean. Um, I did have anger towards other people that were part of the situation. I've had anger towards my own situation. And there was one day where I just thought, you know, Sean's not angry at them anymore. Why am I holding on to his anger? Why am I holding on to that? Um, because it wasn't serving me and it wasn't doing anything for me and it didn't make me feel very good. And so in that respect, that's kind of a way that I learned where I thought, okay, maybe I need to break this down because I'm holding on to 
frustration I have about some ways that Sean was treated when he was alive. But at that point, it just didn't matter anymore. And I, and if I was trying to have more of active relationship with some of these people, maybe, but at that point in time, I wasn't. So there wasn't really any reason for me to continue to hold on to those feelings. Again, this is so interesting. We just had a conversation last night in my group about things that people maybe wanted to let go of in their grief and how it sounds like a great concept, but like the actuality of like, what do you do to let go of that? Right. And, and I was like, oh, that's that's a little more challenging. Were there other things that you came across like in, in your grief that you're like, oh, I think I'm ready to like put this down or I'm ready to let this go? And if so, like, how did you do it? Like, what were the mechanics of that? It's still a process. I think I keep coming back to the idea of forgiveness and again, not forgetting, but of that forgiveness. And I know I hear all these different podcasts where I feel like forgiveness is something that we're always, well, I say we always, but the people are constantly trying to understand or figure out how it works or exactly as you said, the mechanics of it. But I, I feel like with my grief process, I'm still trying to let go of responsibility, if any, that I did have in contributing to the stress that Sean had that I think compounded. Um, I still have moments where I, you know, wonder, okay, he didn't die at home. What if I had gone up to where he did die? What if I had not stayed here? Um, So trying to let go of some of that guilt that comes along of those what ifs and the shoulds. The truth is that I could have changed the situation and made different decisions and the same outcome could have still occurred. So I'd say those are probably the most prominent parts that I've tried to. And I think a big part of it too is, and I'm definitely not here yet, but part of that forgiveness is forgiving myself for some of the ways that I was and seeing how I've changed since his death and then coming to terms with some of the insecurities or, and and this happens in any relationship, you can find ways that you interact with someone. Sean and I had a great relationship. It doesn't mean that I still didn't have insecurities or there still weren't things that would come up for me and, and how I was raised that I would project onto him and being able to identify and see those now. And then, you know, I have to release myself of that and say like, even though I had those qualities and characteristics and still do to an extent, those aren't the reason that he died, you know, and being able to separate myself from that. It always makes me think of this idea that when someone dies, we lose the privilege of having a real relationship. That's a really interesting concept. Yeah. Well, and the idea that like we look back on our relationship with that person and expect perfection of ourselves in a way that if they were still alive, we may have given ourselves a little bit more grace to be a human with this human that we are interacting with. But once they die, it's like this retrospective, oh my gosh, how was I not perfect here? How did I not have perfect ability to forecast the future or to be completely patient a thousand percent of the time? And, you know, I'm like, y'all are holding yourself to some really high standards in retrospect. That makes so much sense. And I think For me, part of it is also just still that residual pain from how much my marriage and I were under the microscope. It was open season. It was, you know, um, there are people who are, you know, making comments about custody of my son and, and people wanting to claim that I could have no legal right to even my house. (laughs) So 
I think when I do these conversations and it's great, I think there's a little bit of me that's like, oh yes, I was insecure, but I've been working on it. You know, I'm like the almost I'm, I'm working on it. So I'm not like that again. But the truth is, you know, I could still be that insecure person in a relationship and just to see how that manifests. And yes, it could have contributed to the stress, but it's not necessarily a direct causation. And that's, that's the part that I'm still working through to release for myself as well. Changing course a little bit with your son, he was just one when your husband, his dad died, and it's been three years now. What have you seen him need in his grief? I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, It's hard to tell sometimes what is grief and then what is just typical behavior in growing. I will say when he started asking questions about his dad and how he died, because I was very honest from the beginning that his dad had died. That one was harder for me to navigate. And I had heard that for kids, it's important to be very concrete in how you explain things. And I thought I was being very concrete and it turns out I was still being very ambiguous. And so he did do some play therapy. And I think that was the most beneficial for him for his grief. Cause I hear him say, my dad has died way more often than I did before. And now he has a concept for what that means. And so what I was taught, as you say, daddy died, his body no longer works, and he stopped breathing. And just just that small explanation was a huge shift for my son in being able to understand and also be able to say what has happened to his dad. And I think also something that I'm finding now as he is getting older, because he is a little over four, is finding opportunities for him to be around other kids who've lost a parent. There's just something about that, just like it is for me, I go to a suicide specific support group and it's helpful for me to be around people who've had this type of loss because there's just an understanding. And so I do have some friends who are also widows by suicide and we try and get our kids together now a little bit more. And there are a couple of them around his age, a couple of them are older, but to get them around so that they have that community themselves where they don't have to explain either. There's just an understanding that they come from a one-parent household right now. As you were saying, like, you know, how important it is and how helpful it's been to be in a group with other moms and widows who also had someone die of suicide and having that specific to how the person died. I realized I was like, oh, I think I always have this understanding of, oh, that's really helpful because people know like how to talk about it or what to say. And listening to you today, it's it sounds like it's almost maybe less about what is said and more about what doesn't have to be said. Exactly. Because there's just, there's just an understanding when I first said to my son, oh, this little girl, her dad died the same way you did. And he, and unfortunately I told him when we were leaving the house and he was like, mom, we have to go back. I need to ask her about it. (laughs) But I think, I think so. I think in a way and bear with me and how I phrase this, it's almost normalizing that he comes from a single parent household and in a way normalizing the ability to talk about the fact his dad died. And that's not to say that he's not around a very big support system and we don't have other family, but I, like part of what I'm doing is trying to empower more people to feel that they can talk about it and feel less shame about the fact that, oh, my dad died. And, and to be able to say, mm-hmm, yep. Because for, for me, I'll say a fear is when he is getting into school and, you know, 
when kids start to make fun of each other or say things just out of their frustration. And I've talked to other moms who've had their kids almost bullied in a way that is around the loss of what they've had in their life. And I've had to say, okay, I'm just going to figure out how to handle it if it should ever happen. But I almost want to make it for him. Like it's, yep, his dad died, you know, where it's not going to be, um, as weaponized as it could be because he's able to talk about it, feel through it and understand that, you know, when someone else is trying to use that against him, that it just doesn't have as much power. Does that make sense? It, it totally makes sense. And I'm imagining I'm having this image of, you know, when you get together with other moms who have had someone die of suicide and your son is able to talk to other kids who have had someone die or have a parent die of suicide. It's almost like you're building some endurance to the reality of that experience so that when you go out into the world with other people who have not had that experience or have no idea how to talk about it because they just haven't been exposed to it and maybe don't respond in ways that are kind or caring. It's like you've already got that strength, that internal wherewithal to navigate other people's inability to be there for you because you do have that core of people who can be there for you. Yeah, I like the way you put that. That was succinct. Like, can I like grab that record and use that? (laughs) Absolutely. Feel free to quote. I'll forget I said it in five minutes. (laughs) I'm glad we're recording right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, we we connected because you've written a book, The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. And you have a website and you have a podcast. And you talked about every time you have one of these conversations, you have a little bit of that. I'm under the microscope again. I got to show and prove that I'm like, got it together. So how did you decide to go so public with your story? It wasn't the initial intent, I'll say that. Um where, and I found that where I live, it's pretty inconsistent, the reports I hear of what support is available. So for my particular situation, I didn't know the first thing of how to handle the fact my husband died in a different county. I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know how to contact a funeral home or you know any of that, let alone what to do with bank accounts. And not to say that I wasn't participating in these things like our finances throughout the day, but it you know, uh, I was 30, 38 at the time. So it's not like I was at the forefront of my mind of what to do should someone die. And I had someone from the county say, I'm here to guide you. And I never heard from that person again. And so I just started jotting down notes. And I've always been a person who says, if I'm going through this, and it's really hard, you know, I've been I've been called the salmon swimming upstream that maybe I can do something to alleviate how much stress this brings and how much pain, additional pain this brings by writing down some notes and maybe guiding someone else. And then it just kind of very nicely fit into a book and it came together really well. And then I heard of a a publishing company who helped people like me try and edit and publish. And it just kind of fell into place really, really well. How has it been to have your story of out in the world in that more uh, visible, listenable way? It's interesting because on the one hand, there's still a part of me that has that imposter syndrome of really, you know, okay, you read it. Okay, that's cool. Oh, it worked for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm really just still that OT who's getting her son to, <laughs> to school and fighting to get him up in the morning because he wants to sleep in. And then it it is, it actually 
very touching for me when I do have people reach out and say, I've had a similar story or something you said in your book really helped me on my journey. Um, I myself have gone back and read things and gone, did I write that? Okay, I should probably take my own advice because that's actually helpful. (laughs) Um, It's kind of a a mixed bag of feelings. um, But I think, again, when I can get down to what my core reason is behind it, uh, I have a little bit less of the imposter syndrome and I feel a little bit more encouraged to keep going. This is kind of a random question. One of the things I think I hear a lot is because I've had someone in my life die, I should know how to talk to other people who have had someone in their life die. And still, I don't. <laughs> I'm just mm-hmm. thinking because now you do have people reach out to you who have listened to your podcast or read your book or wanting to work with you in some way. When you imagine like walking into your support group, there's a new mom whose partner just died of suicide. What do you imagine wanting to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll say you are spot on <laughs> just because at least I can say for myself that just because I've had this loss does not mean I always have the right words. Um, I even had someone say I must understand or know every I must be an expert in mental health because Sean died. Nope. Nope, that's not the case either. Uh, Truly, what I want to say is that really sucks. And it's horrible and it's awful. And it's one of the most ridiculous things that you have to go through. And you are around people who are here to help you walk through it. Uh, But it's absolutely awful. And to my, I'm sorry, it's like, I'm sorry you you have to go through this. Um, But I also understand that sometimes saying my condolences or I'm, sorry for your loss is more appropriate but really I wish I wish I could say a little bit more that's raw like this is horrible no like right no one should have to go through this type of loss or this type of grief and yet there is a part of me that understands and does feel that with this level of loss there's a bigger appreciation for when I experience the joy still annoyed I have to go through that still frustrated when I have another grief burst, uh, but I, there's a part of me that can understand that it is helping me be better about what really matters. It makes me think of this idea of like, I'm getting through this, I'm learning things about myself, I'm growing, and maybe I would have preferred to not have to be a better person if I didn't have this situation happen, because it's totally unfair, and it, yeah, would have been a lot better if it hadn't happened. Yes. And I, I will say, I say that I'm having tantrums. I'll be like, I'm having a tantrum right now because I don't want to deal with this. And I'm, you know, as I said, I'm annoyed. This is coming up again. Here's my backpack of grief. And that, you know, I think in any, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've experienced this with some of your groups, you know, the more we resist it, the more (laughs) it just hangs out until finally there's some surrender to say, okay, I've got my tools. I'll work through this. I'm still annoyed. I still find it unfair, but I do know I have to work through this. Well, and I think resistance doesn't get enough um, acknowledgement, right? That that's part of the process too, is of course we would be resistant to this. It's something we never wished would ever happen and it's all wrong. So of course we're going to feel resistant to it. And so in my work, I'm always trying to help people maybe not give themselves such a hard time for feeling resistant to feeling really hard, intense feelings or having to do dumb stuff they don't want to have to do. And they wouldn't have to do if they weren't in this situation. 
Exactly. Like YouTube, how to fix the toilet, right? <laughs> like, yes, no, absolutely. And, and, so, you know, that resistance piece uh, is so part of it. And I even recently had a moment where I had a whole new layer of grief that I didn't realize was there and it presented itself. And I mean, I felt like I was my four-year-old kicking and screaming for a few days because I was like, oh, I thought I was doing so well. But then that's also part of just, I, I view acceptance as, as more than just accepting that someone is gone, but accepting exactly what you're talking about, having grace and and giving ourselves permission of you're going to have to go through this and there are going to be ups and downs. And how do we handle those ups and downs with these feelings that come up and going, okay, yeah, you know, and it does feel like you go backwards a little bit. I don't know if it's fully going backwards, although I, I do have times of the year where I, I feel like I'm at day zero and I'm reliving everything and starting to question things and then it passes and I move on. Um, but I mean, it's just, it's finding other ways to feel a sense of that control internally so that when those grief moments happen, I trust myself that I can work through them. So this idea that the tantrums don't stop, but maybe you get a little bit better at having the tantrum or recognizing the tantrum won't last forever. I hope so. <laughs> I do hope so. Because it is when I find that I'm having one like, oh, God, okay. And then, you know, my therapist, he's great. He's a, a grief-specific therapist, and he keeps trying to graduate me. He can't yet. He can't. I don't know that you'll ever be able to graduate me. You're like, I've been told that grief lasts forever, so I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, we're stuck together. <laughs> well, Alexandra, what if people are wanting to check out your book, connect with you? Like, where should they head? Sure. Um, the book, as you mentioned, is called The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. It's available on Amazon, and there are other sites I found that it's available. Um, you can also, my website is forwardtojoy.com. It's all spelled out. And then I'm also on Instagram at Forward to Joy. And remind me again the name of your podcast. Oh, the Widows Club. You know, I keep forgetting to add <laughs> podcast, but this is it's called the Widows Club. You can find it um, wherever you get your podcasts. So, listeners, if you want to keep tuning into Alexandra and her temper tantrums and the things that she's learning <laughs> yeah. in her grief, be sure to head head over there to listen. And I'll put all those links uh, in the show notes as well to make it easier to find. Thank you. Well, Alexandra, thank you again for your time, for uh, your willingness to put your story out in the world, for you know sharing that sense of humor with us that's starting to come back online a little bit. I uh, enjoyed our conversation today. Oh, thank you so much. And listeners out there, I know I say it every single time, but thank you for being part of the show, for being part of our community. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to reach out to me, you can email me directly at griefoutloud at Dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also the main website for Dougie Center, where you can find all of our free downloadable resources, information about our local programming, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. And I'm excited as always to share that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.